Well, again, I trust that you um, had a great Thanksgiving. And in line with moving towards the holidays in prayer, I felt very strongly that the Lord had placed it upon my heart that we were to have a teaching series that would deal with relationship. With relationship. One of the reasons for that is, is that oftentimes as we move through Thanksgiving into Christmas, we end up encountering family members or friends that maybe things aren't as we had hoped and prayed that they would be relationally. And so the purpose for this sermon series was to get us to think about and to pray about our relationship with God and our relationships with people. And so as we process through that, the first week we talked about the Father's love. Rob Reamer preached, gave us an incredible sermon about how our own earthly Father and our image through that of what the Father is can deeply affect our ability to connect with God as Father. The next thing, the message that I brought was about Jesus and our relationship to Jesus and a relational reboot with Jesus as Peter and Jesus met over breakfast on the beach as Jesus made him some fish. And then last but not least, Martin Sanders preached last Sunday morning for us as he came into town to do a marriage seminar for us at City Church Central. And he brought a powerful message about the family and a relational reboot with the family. This morning's message that I want to bring is going to be brought to us through the parable of the Good Samaritan. As I was praying about and thinking about the best way to end this sermon series on which we've entitled Relational Reboot, I felt so strongly drawn to the idea of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I want to talk to us about this morning through this sermon is the whole idea of love God and love people. Love God. Love people. I want you to pause for a moment. Is there a person or people in your life that you just struggle to relate to? Are there people in your life that you would rather avoid? Do you have people in your life that you feel as though a relationship with that person is just way too taxing? It maxes you out and it takes you beyond where you really want to go. How many of you have people like that in your life? Raise your hand. How many of you know if you don't have someone in your life like that right now? They might move into the neighborhood next week. Same person, different name, different location. I want to begin this sermon by saying this. I've experienced in my own life the power of Jesus to help me love people who without Jesus, no way. No possible way. I would have cut bait years ago, but God by His grace has been teaching me, and it's not a one-shop kind of stop thing. This is something God teaches us about throughout our relationship as we follow Jesus and serve others. But it's incredible how God can help us in the midst of relationships that are not what we wish that they had been or are now. And so I was thinking about the whole idea of relational reboot. I had an experience with rebooting something this about two weeks ago 
and it was my iPhone. Now, technology is great when it works, but I don't actually have a secretary. I never have. I've pastored here for 20 years. I had a secretary maybe for the first year, but after that, it's just kind of about electronics, my computer, I do my own emails, and my iPhone is kind of that right arm of mine that I communicate with people. Well, about two weeks ago, I was getting ready to go to bed. When I was getting ready to go, go to bed, this alert popped up on the screen of my iPhone, and here's what it says. There is a new iOS operating system available. I didn't want that. An iOS operating system is kind of the thing that drives a smartphone. But I looked at it and it said, update now or wait till later. So I didn't want it, so I pushed wait till later. The next thing that happened was there was this alert that popped up on my screen that said this, if your phone is plugged in at 2 a.m., the new iOS operating system will be installed. Well, at that moment, I was tired. And I could have looked up how to stop it, but I was tired, so I just put my phone by my bed, I plugged it in, and in the morning I got up and I looked at my phone and I said, who has messed with my phone? Because the front was different, how it was moving was different, the whole thing had changed. And then I remembered that my phone in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. had rebooted and there was a new operating system. I wasn't real happy about that. Some things are better, some things are worse. But there was a reboot on my iPhone and it literally changed how the iPhone operates. Bunch of stuff is different. This morning's sermon is kind of going to be a challenge to be spiritually like that. Where spiritually and relationally in our relationship with God, in our relationships with people, that I believe for some of us, God wants to challenge us to reboot relationally with people in our lives. So in order to do that, again, I would like for us to take a look at the story in the Newer Testament that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're utilizing your smartphone, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're gonna be looking at verses 25 through 37. And if you utilize the Bible we provide, you can turn to page 843. Page 843. We're going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now before I get started, I know some of us here at City um, are very unfamiliar with the Bible. So what I want to explain is this. A parable is a culturally relevant story that has enough realism in it and reality in it that anyone who hears it from that culture would get the emotional, spiritual, and moral impact of the parable. But the idea also of a parable as it is with the writing of the Newer Testament, the idea is, is that you and I put ourselves into it. You don't read it from a distance. You look at the parable, you become emotionally and spiritually embedded in the parable, and then the question is, what is it that God's going to say to me through the parable that was just given? Now, the parable we're getting ready to read was taught by Jesus. So let's read 
the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's what the Bible tells us. Luke 10, beginning to read in verse number 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what I want to say is, there are a lot of people within the sound of this sermon that have that exact same question. How can I be guaranteed of eternal life? And this guy who's an expert in the law, and to understand that, here's all you need to know. An expert in the law in the Newer Testament was someone who was an Older Testament biblical scholar. And so what this guy is doing is he's standing up in a public forum and he is testing Jesus. More likely than not, he's trying to figure out, is Jesus conservative or liberal? Is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? His idea in testing him is he wants to figure out kind of what is Jesus' perspective and for a Jew during the time of Jesus, it's all about the law. Are you living by the rules? Now, most of us are aware that the first laws began, there were 10 of them. They were given to Moses as the children of Israel exit captivity in Egypt and they're moving towards the promised land and God downloads 10 laws to Moses because they haven't been a people group for 430 years. They've lived in slavery. And if you're exiting slavery, you have to know how to govern yourself. And so God in grace and in mercy brings the Ten Commandments and basically says to Moses and this million-something Israelites, if you live by these Ten Commandments, you will have a functioning culture and a society that anyone wants to live in. If you break them, chaos will ensue. And so what you have is, you have this expert in the law. He would have been an expert in the Ten Commandments, but he also would have been an expert in the other 603 laws that are found in the Older Testament. There are 613 laws by the time of Jesus. And so this guy stands up to test Jesus, and in testing Jesus, we discover next what happens. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now let me just pitch you something very carefully. Inheritance happens because of relationship, not because of what you do. When you are relationally connected, whether adopted or born into a family, that's how inheritance happens. You don't work hard enough to get an inheritance. You don't do enough to get an inheritance. The idea is it's always relationally connected. And you can tell by the story that this guy does not understand how God works. He thinks he has to do all the right things. And if he does all the right things, then eternal life will become an inheritance for him. Now, even as an expert in the law, Obviously, he recognizes this is not working, and so he asks Jesus the question, what must I do 
in order to inherit eternal life. Now, if you meet Jesus and you are during the gospel times, if you have asked Jesus a question, you have an 85% chance he's going to ask you a question back. Isn't that fascinating? So he asked Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him a question in return. Here it is. What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? And he answered. This is the expert in the law answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds to him, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now here's what's amazing. When he was asking Jesus, the idea of inheriting eternal life, as I referenced before, what the guy was most likely thinking about was the Ten Commandments. In other words, if you live by them, God's going to bless you, and you will be blessed because you live within those laws. And so what I want us to do just for a moment is I'd like us to refresh our memory about the Ten Commandments. I know it might be hard to believe, but I learned the Ten Commandments when I was in third grade in a public school in Wisconsin. I learned the Ten Commandments. We were unchurched completely. But the Ten Commandments were something we learned, and it was explained to us, even as a younger child, that these things were healthy to live by. Now, let's put up the first four commandments. Let's put them up on the screen. Here's what the Ten Commandments are and what that the lawyer and the expert in the law would have been referencing. You can find them in Exodus chapter 20. Here's what God says to the Israelites. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of, of slavery. In other words, I'm the God that sets you free. I'm the God that will set you free from bondage and from slavery. And then... I've skipped some things, but here's what God says next. First, you shall have no other gods before me. By the way, that Hebrew word can also mean beside. In other words, no other gods. Next, you shall not make for yourself an image. The idea there is, is that all of the nations around the Israelites in Exodus when they received the law, had gods that they would hold with them as good luck charms. They had gods for battle. They had gods for fertility. They had these idols that they would make out of stone or out of wood. And God says to the Israelite people, this relationship is going to be by faith. It's not about fashioning some idols, so don't make any other image. Next, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. By the way, that doesn't just mean swearing. 
It means that if you say that God's involved with something in your life, that you behave in a way that makes it apparent that you believe God is involved. In other words, if you say God has said that this deal should be made, or if you believe God has said that you're to do X, Y, or Z, that you process your life in such a way to where you don't misuse the name of the Lord. And then last, the fourth law is the Sabbath. God said to the people of Israel, pick one day, the Sabbath was the Saturday, take that day and set it aside as holy. Why was that important? It's very simple. They were an agricultural society. And if you take one day off, you don't get paid. It means that as a people, God was calling them to trust Him. That he's the God that would provide. So you put your stuff down for one day and you rest and you focus on God and you trust him. But if you're not working your crops that day, it means you're going to trust God to bless your crops. And so those are the first four laws. What's amazing is the first four deal with our relationship with God. Now let's look at the next six. The next six deal with our relationship with people. First four, relationship with God. The last six, relationships with people. Honor your father and mother. In other words, understand what authority is. And as best you can, learn what it means to honor your father and your mother. Ask God for wisdom. I know that some of us sitting here have had very difficult parenting realities. I know this. And yet, for some reason, God calls us in those original ten to be a group of people that honor as best we can our mother and our father. Next, you shall not murder. In other words, don't kill people. Now, we would chuckle at that, right? But I should rephrase that. Don't murder people. The Hebrew word's very clear. There's a difference between killing and murdering in the Hebrew. This one says, don't scheme, don't plot, and don't take someone's life. Don't do that. Next, you shall not commit adultery. Why? It destroys the family. Don't do that. And the family unit is the center of any and every culture. That's how it is. Don't do that. Next, you shall not steal. Now, the funny thing is, is some people sitting here are scratching their head going, why in the world does God have to tell people to not murder and not steal? Do you want to know why? It's because of the cultures around them. Murder was common. Theft was common. And God literally had to lay out in his law the idea of don't murder, don't steal. The next was you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. By the way, I believe this involves gossip. Don't perpetuate stuff about other people. Don't spread false rumors. Don't undermine other people to your advantage. Don't do that. And then last, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house. And if you were to read on, it says don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't covet their oxen, don't covet their animals, don't covet their sofa, their furniture, their kitchen cabinets, don't, don't do that. Just don't covet their stuff. Now why? Because you see the last six here? 
They destroy human relationships. They destroy them. If you steal, you destroy human relationship. And if you steal from someone, you literally take their life force because they've worked for it. And if you steal it, you're taking their life. Don't murder, that's obvious. That kind of ruins relationships, doesn't it? Can you put those back up one more time? Then you look at these and it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, animals, or whatever. Don't covet their stuff. Isn't it funny that we can live in a culture where stuff means more than people? God says don't do that. That destroys relationships. And you see, the idea though is, is when you look at these ten, the first four, relationship with God. The last six, relationships with people. When you look at them, this is one way that you may want to live when you look at those ten. You may want to extract yourself from culture. Let me give you an example. We've had several new neighbors move into our neighborhood recently, and I want to illustrate what I'm trying to say the following way. Imagine that we have a new neighbor, and I remember the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's stuff. Don't do that. And so Fran shows up, and she goes next door, and she meets them, and then she comes back home, and she said, Pete, we need to go next door and meet the new neighbors. And I go, is he married? And she says, yes. And I go, don't want to meet him. You know why? Because the 10th commandment says, don't covet your neighbor's house, so if I never go in it, I'll never have to covet it. And if the neighbor guy's married and I never meet his wife, I'll never covet her. And if I never go in their house, I don't know what stuff they have, so I won't have to worry about coveting. So all of my neighbors are out. Don't want to meet them, don't want to know them, and if I keep them at a different distance, I definitely will never want to kill them. That's almost a guarantee. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to live through life and I'm going to turtle up emotionally. I'm going to extract myself from every relationship I can find. But let me tell you, I'm going to live by the ten. I'm going to live by them. I'm going to live by them. But in our story, we've got this expert in the law that approaches Jesus. Says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And when you look at this story, here's what you would discover if you read the rest of the Newer Testament. Jesus took the ten and he made them more difficult. Things like this. Don't commit adultery. Here's what Jesus said. If a man looks lustfully at a woman, he has already committed adultery in his heart. And we say, what? Jesus said, what? Jesus said, when you take that commandment, he steps in before the action and says, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And you begin to realize that Jesus isn't easy on stuff like this. I go, 
I kind of like the Ten Commandments better before Jesus commentated on them. But all of a sudden, Jesus steps in front of those. And He begins to explain how God actually views this thing. Now, when you look at the story that we're getting ready or we've begun to read, it says that on an occasion, an expert of the law comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to the guy, what is written in the law and how do you read it? I want to know what you think. I'm not so worried about what I think. I want to know what you think. And the guy gives the following answer. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, he was parroting Jesus. Because Jesus, we know from the book of Matthew, had said that early on in his ministry. So the guy shows up, and when Jesus asks him the question, all the guy does is parrot back to Jesus what he knows Jesus wants to hear. And the Ten Commandments would confirm it. The first four, loving God. The last six, loving people. So this guy's response to Jesus is very simple. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answers him, do this and you'll have life. If you do this, you'll have life. If you love God and you love people and you keep relationship with God and relationships with people first in your life, you're going to live life. You'll actually have a life. But the Bible goes on to say this. Chapter 10, verse 29. It says, He wanted to justify Himself. He wanted to justify Himself. Isn't that fascinating? In justifying Himself, Ultimately, here's what he's trying to do. And the reality of it is, a lot of people who are looking towards Jesus want exactly what this guy wanted, and it's this. I don't really want to give my life to Jesus. I just want enough of Jesus to make my life a little bit better than it is right now. I want just enough of Jesus in order to give me a little bit of peace. I want Pete Hartwig as I move toward Jesus just to round off a couple of the rough edges, that's all I'm looking for. But you know what's fascinating in the Newer Testament? That it's very clear Jesus did not come into this world just to make a better Pete Hartwig marginally better. In fact, the Newer Testament says things like this, Pete Hartwig is dead in his trespasses and his sins and he's sinking horribly. And when I try to work my way to God, the hole gets deeper. So who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who rescues me from my sin and from my death. It's not about a better Pete Hartwig. It's about a new operating system that the Holy Spirit places within me. Totally different. Totally different. But what I know is, is that all over this world, people are looking at Jesus, they want a little bit better of themselves. The Bible never offers that to you. What the Bible offers to you and to me through Jesus is if you recognize you are trapped in sin, Jesus Christ will forgive you, 
He will rescue you, He will transform you, and He will give you power to live a new life. That's what the Bible teaches. Otherwise, what's the point of the death, burial, and resurrection? All we needed was a couple moral teachings from Jesus and He could have exited the scene. It's not what the Bible offers. Yet this guy is coming to Jesus and what he's looking for is something just a little bit better than what he has. It's what he's looking for. And then it says, in the latter half of that verse 29, after it says, and he wanted to justify himself, he asked Jesus this question. Who is my neighbor? Now, when you see that question, it seems like a dumb one. How many of you know some of your neighbors? Raise your hand. How many of you can name some of your neighbors? Raise your other hand. Some of you wish you had a different neighbor. Raise both hands. Maybe your neighbor's thinking the same thing about you at this moment. But the idea is the guy asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? It seems like a crazy question because Jesus could have said, walk up and down your street and the people that live next to you are your neighbors. But you see, he was trying to justify himself because in Jewish theology at the time, the person that was my neighbor is the, the person that was economically and spiritually my equal. No one else was my neighbor. I mean, good Lord, God couldn't expect me to love someone else other than those people because they're not lovable. And notice this too. He says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? This guy's the center of his own universe. He is the center of his own universe. Jesus, who's my neighbor? Tell me. And then Jesus tells a brief parable that is absolutely profound. And the parable confronts this guy feeling as though he's the center of his own universe. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read the parable. But the parable goes something like this. The guy says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the following story. There was a guy who was going from a certain place, Jericho, down to Jerusalem, and on the way he got mugged. And the Bible says he gets beaten with an inch of his life, he is stripped naked, and he's left for dead. Then, lo and behold, a priest. One of the people that's at the top of the religious leadership is also traveling that road to go to Jerusalem, no doubt to do his priestly duties. And as he's walking along, he sees this guy that's naked, bloody, beaten within an inch of his life. And the Bible says he walks on the other side of the road and keeps going. Why? Well, it's simple. There's two reasons. The first one is if the guy's not dead yet, then the thieves could still be in the area. You've got to preserve yourself. The other thing is this, is if he touches the guy and the guy dies, now the priest is spiritually unclean and he cannot do his duties before God. And so look, as we all know, duties for God are more important than people, aren't they? And so he passes by and lo and behold, a Levite comes second. Well, the Levites were kind of the servants in the temple underneath the priests. And there's a clear sense that the Levite probably knew that the priest had gone down the road ahead of him. And so when he gets to this beaten up guy that's on the edge of the ditch and he's within an inch of losing his life, the guy goes, well, if the priest doesn't stop, I don't need to either. And so he keeps going. 
Now, the logical third person would be the lay person that served in the temple. A Jewish person. The first one's Jewish, a priest. The second one's Jewish, a Levite. And the third one should be a lay person that serves in the temple. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says a Samaritan was coming along. All Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile. They come from a region of some, called Samaria where the Jews interbred with Gentiles. They were Benedict Arnolds. They were traitors against the Jewish nation. They had intermarried and interbred with Gentiles. And now Samaritans are viewed as total outcasts from the Jewish faith. And Jesus says the third guy was not a Jewish layperson. He is a Samaritan. And as he's traveling, he sees the guy. And he's beaten within an inch of his life. And the reason why the priest didn't stop, by the way, is he couldn't tell if he was Jewish or not. You could tell who a Jew is by their accent and how they dress. But he's a bloody mess. And the Samaritan goes in, picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pays for him, makes sure everything's set, bandages his wounds. Now here's the funny thing. Is that the direction that the Samaritan was headed he was heading into hostile territory. And on his donkey, he would have had a Jew that was beaten with an inch of his life. And here we have a Samaritan walking into town. This would be like an Indian in the Wild West bringing a cowboy into Dodge City with arrows sticking out of his back. And an Indian walking in saying, Here, this guy's life is in jeopardy at every turn. And then Jesus turns to the expert in the law. He asks him a question. Who was the neighbor? And the expert in the law says, well, there's only one good answer. The one that had mercy on him. And Jesus said to the expert in the law, go do likewise. And you'll live. You want to have life. Live this way. If you really want to live life to the fullest, don't worry about who's your neighbor. Worry about, are you a neighbor to people that meet you? And all of a sudden, the idea of me being a follower of Jesus is elevated to a whole new level. And here's why. In the natural, I don't want to get involved. But because of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly I can find the strength to be involved in relationships that are difficult, challenging, being blunt, they can be somewhat bloody. But God, through Jesus, calls me into the midst of that. Here's what I know. is If you and I would be willing to follow Jesus at this level, we will discover God's grace and God's mercy flowing through us to others at a level we could have never imagined. When we think about relational rebooting and we think about the idea of following Jesus, the question has to be for me and for you. Am I truly a neighbor to others the way Christ would call me to be? I'm going to ask at this time that you would stand with me. And as we stand together, 
I'm going to ask that you would take out the communion that you were handed as you came through the door. If you don't have communion, please raise your hand and we have those in the back that will serve you. So if we could have the ushers quickly grab the plates and get ready to serve people with their hands raised. Again, just kind of keep your hand raised so that people can see who needs to be served. The expert in the law found out something. And it's this. It's a very dangerous thing to sit down with Jesus and have a conversation with Him. It's a radical thing. And if you're like I am so often, man, I want to sit down with Jesus and be so justified in who I am. But what's incredible is when this guy sits down with Jesus, instead of being justified, he is challenged to love and to be a neighbor at a level that would have never entered his head. But here's what I can tell you. This world is literally dying for people who will take this seriously and to live it out. You know, every time people sat down with Jesus and broke bread with Him, man, it was tough. He had a way of speaking right into their souls. The Last Supper was no different. Jesus gathered with His disciples and in the midst of that meal, He challenged them. He challenged them. As we hold the cup, and we hold the bread, I believe that Jesus is real. That He's resurrected and that He's as alive today as He was 2,000 years ago when He had this meal with His disciples. So with that in mind, would you take just a moment as you hold the emblems to close your eyes in God's presence? And as you do, is there a relational reboot that you need? Is Jesus calling you to a higher level of relationship than you would naturally ever want to do? As you hold the bread and you hold the cup, know this, that Jesus was the Good Samaritan. He went in to rescue people and it cost Him His life. He went in to rescue you and to rescue me from my sin, my brokenness, my suffering, my shame, and my pain the thing that everyone else wants to avoid. Jesus dove straight in and He gave up His life for me and He's done the same for you. With our hearts open and our eyes closed, here's what is written in the Newer Testament about the meal that we're getting ready to take. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, Listen to this next phrase. On the night he was betrayed. On the night 
that he was sold out for 30 pieces of silver. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's hold the bread up before the Lord. Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. God, I pray over those of us who maybe are taking communion for the very first time. I pray over those of us that have taken this communion thousands of times. I pray in this moment that we would be a people that recognize what you have done for us. That you rescued us, bleeding and battered in the spiritual ditch of life. And it cost you your life and your broken body. Jesus, we give you thanks. Let's eat together. Let's hold the cup up before the Lord. It says, in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we hold the cup up before the Lord, Let's remind ourselves again that Jesus on the night He was betrayed, on the night He was literally stabbed in the back, He brought this meal to you and to me so that we could constantly remember what He has done for us to free us from sin and to bring forgiveness and eternal hope in Him. Jesus, thank You for Your shed blood. Thank you that you were beaten and battered for us so that we now, 2,000 years later, could break this bread and drink this cup with you, knowing that in it, these hold the symbols of everlasting life. Jesus, thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you that your blood covers our sin. Thank you that your blood removes our sin. And that we can stand confident in eternal life in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink together. As the worship team leads us, I'm going to ask that for our response would be two things. Number one, a couple of weeks ago, we gave away hundreds of these relational reboot keychains. If you are not here, or if you are not then, here then, but you believe God is calling you to a relational reboot, as you exit on top of the Bible case, you're going to find these. I encourage you to take one. The other way we're going to conclude, our response is going to be to worship Jesus. I'm going to ask that you would take just a few moments and take a Sabbath rest right now. And that you would take a moment to worship Jesus. And then we will conclude with the benediction and the blessing. Let's worship Him.